The Gospel of Luke begins with these words. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Thus reads the introduction to one of the two most carefully written books of history in the New Testament, both of them authored by the same man. The others, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, are all just as inspired. They are all just as authoritative as Luke and Acts. The material of them is just as important and just as necessary to us as Christian believers. But not one of the others claims for itself an approach or an intention like that of the modern historian. Luke says, it seemed good to me to write to you an orderly account. Matthew, Mark, and John make no claim to be writing an orderly account of the things contained in their Gospels. And a byproduct, then, of this statement of Luke is that when we're studying the Gospels <coughs> and we find some uncertainty about the ordering of events in the life of Jesus, and those events are recorded in the Gospel of Luke, then it is Luke's order that is to be preferred to the other. Luke addresses both the Gospel and the book of Acts to someone named Theophilus. There are commentators who believe that Theophilus was a real person, possibly a member of the Roman nobility who had been converted and needed to be instructed in the elemental things of Christ. But it also might be a title used for a certain class of person. The name translates two Greek words, God and friend, or friend of God. And some think that this was a word used for Gentiles in the first century who were attracted to the religion, to the ethical monotheism of the Jews who attended services in their synagogues, perhaps even became backers and supporters of those synagogues, like Cornelius, the Roman centurion, but didn't fully convert to Judaism. But because of their interest and because of their attendance, they would have been among the first to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and prompted by the Holy Spirit would have been among the first to believe. It might have been to these friends of God that God commissioned Luke to write the words of his gospel. The words of this gospel written by Luke, the thoughts were placed in his mind by the Holy Spirit. The words of the introduction to this gospel remind us of the importance of the history of the faith that saves us. In a very similar way, the Apostle Peter wrote, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christians to whom Luke was writing may have been ignorant of the history of the life of Christ. Or it might be that even in that early period in the church, error was taking the place of truth in the common understanding of that history. 
And thus Luke wrote perhaps to teach or perhaps to correct the popular knowledge of that history upon which our faith rests. And by inference, Luke tells us that history is important. You and I live in a time in which many who call themselves Christians are blithely and almost deliberately ignorant of that history and even declare themselves indifferent to it as if it is not an important matter. Historical accuracy, doctrinal precision, even the moral imperatives of our faith are deliberately sacrificed by many to the supposed greater good of making Christianity popular among non-believers and contributing to the growth of the church. This sets the stage for mass defections from real Christianity and an age in which cunningly devised fables are drawn into the vacuum created by ignorance. As Christians, you and I are called to be careful students of the Bible in general and of its historical portions in particular. I'd like to talk with you this morning about some signs of our willingness to accept fables instead of real history, signs particularly evident in the expressions of our faith that are typical during the season through which we are passing. We find some of them printed on the cards that we send and receive. They're represented in Christmas pageants held in churches and creches displayed on our mantles and even in some of the carols that we sing. I'm not suggesting that there is anything evil or sinister in all of this, but I do believe that the widespread acceptance of these common errors, the indifference to the details of the history of this part of Christ's life, and perhaps even the resistance to the idea that such things as these are important for us to be thinking about, indicate that the friends of God need to be re-instructed in that history and reminded once again of its importance. I'd like to consider with you some of the errors in the popular understanding of the various acts in the original drama of that first Christmas and in the order of their appearance. When we read the New Testament records of the birth of Christ, the first characters on the stage of this ancient drama are the angels of God. In Luke 1, we read of Gabriel's visit to Mary prior to her conception. In Matthew 1, we read of an angel's visit to Joseph after that conception. In Luke 2, we read of the angel's announcement to the shepherds. And errors in the popular perception of angels are common. One of the most common is that they sang. You and I just sang about angels singing, if I'm not mistaken. This idea is found in many of the Christmas hymns that we sing, and one of them goes so far as to report that the angels accompanied themselves on their harps of gold. The one song that most accurately reflects the history recorded in Scripture is the one that speaks of the first Noel the angels did say. Because Luke reports suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, not singing, but saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, I'm not suggesting that we throw away our hymnals. I'm not suggesting that we get out a red felt tip marker and make big X's through the hymns or through the lines of the hymns that indicate that the angels sang. The words of our hymns are poetry. 
They are not prose. They are often more like holy romance than sacred theology. I read many of them in preparing for this sermon, and I found the experience delightful and worshipful. The services of the church would be impoverished without these grand and beautiful melodies and their sweet words. But the lesson here is for you and for me to build our knowledge of the truth of the history of Jesus' life and his birth in particular on the simplest words of Scripture and not on the exultant words of men. A far more serious error regarding angels, one that today finds almost universal representation wherever figures of angels are found, is that they are female. From the tops of Christmas trees to the shelves at Bronner's, from the embossed images on Christmas cards to jewelry to wrapping paper, the pervasive view in our culture is that the angels of Christmas are in reality angelettes. Even a half-hearted effort to review passages of Scripture that deal with angels would dispel this notion. Every noun in the Greek language which the New Testament was written in is gender-specific. Every noun is masculine or feminine or neuter. There are no exceptions. The word that is translated angel is a masculine noun. The names that are given to the angels in the Bible are all masculine names. The functions described to angels are those we associate with masculinity. Armed with swords, they guard and protect. Lifting trumpets to their lips, they herald the various phases of the terrible judgments of God. And in sacred history, when angels have appeared to men or to women, the form they always adopt is that of men like those sent to deliver Lot from Sodom before its destruction, and those who met the women visiting Jesus' tomb on that greatest of all Sunday mornings. From all of this, we have to assume that the angels who appeared to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born were powerfully built, impressive figures whose first words had to be, don't be afraid. Man-like creatures with bulging biceps, Biceps that bore tattoos, tattoos with the figure of a heart, and inscribed in the heart was the word dad, because these are Protestant angels, you have to understand. I have noticed over the years that this view that the angels of the Bible are male is not always well received. And I find that strange. And if this makes you uneasy, I'd love to have a chance to talk with you about why this biblical idea contrasted with popular mythology, cunningly devised fables, if you will, would make any Christian uneasy. I would delight to hear an explanation of that. Another problem with the popular view of angels has to do with the number of their wings. We look around us at Christmas and we never see an angel without wings, although surely you're aware that in the Bible they often appear that way. And all of the angels we do see portrayed always have two wings. Although the most common depictions in the Bible show them with either four wings or six wings. And if you want to consider something that might have a dramatic impact the next time we have a Christmas pageant at our church, 
and we want to display angels as accurately as they can, perhaps without the tattoos, if you insist. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of angels that he records in the first chapter of his book. And in the context of his description, he mentions wheels, big wheels, and little wheels. And if you know Ezekiel 1, you know that his angels were not two-faced. They were four-faced. How is it that we of a culture have wandered so far away from the biblical descriptions of things that we say we believe to be sacred? Next to appear on the stage of this beautiful sacred historical drama is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is the first of the human characters introduced by Luke. He tells us of Gabriel's announcement and then of Caesar's decree. And one of the most familiar shapes on the greeting cards that we see during this season is that of a young woman sitting on a donkey being led by a man. This figure is so familiar that you and I would recognize this as Joseph and Mary on their way to Bethlehem if we were to see it in Saudi Arabia in July. It's so common that I'm surprised a name hasn't been invented for this donkey. It's a figure that fits comfortably with our Christian view of chivalry. The lady rides, whatever her condition. The man walks, whatever his condition. And it's one that accommodates our concern for Mary, who had to travel a distance of perhaps a hundred miles in a very delicate and vulnerable condition. But you and I have to be very careful that we don't make history conform to our romantic notions about what ought to be. The Bible makes no mention of a donkey in its records of the journeys of Mary and Joseph, either before Christmas or afterward. We're not given the impression by the scriptures that most of the people traveled on animals of any sort. And in fact, on the one occasion when Jesus rode on a donkey, his disciples were sent into a nearby village with these instructions, go into the village and you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me, which suggests that at that time, donkeys were anything but plentiful in the land. And you'll remember that in the one parable of the Lord in which anyone rode on an animal of any kind, it was the good Samaritan whom we have reason to believe in Jesus' imagination was a man of substance and wealth. And Luke makes it very plain that Joseph and Mary were a very poor couple. As uncomfortable as the thought makes us, and as uncomfortable as it surely made Mary, it appears that as Jesus and his disciples walked everywhere they went, she and Joseph made that long journey from Nazareth and Galilee to Bethlehem and Judea on foot. And as we follow the inspired script of the original drama, the next characters to come on the stage are the shepherds. It's interesting. I find it a little amusing to note that while Luke describes these men as vigilant, he says that they were keeping watch over their flock at night. One of the most popular hymns of the season claims that they were all sitting on the ground, and another says that they were lying down. These poetic pictures hardly correspond to the watchfulness ascribed to these men by the Bible. 
And in more than one song used to adorn the worship of the church in this joyous season is the idea that the shepherds saw the star that was guiding the wise men to the place where Jesus was to be found. In fact, in one hymn we read that the light of that star was so bright it could even be seen in the daylight. The shepherds saw a great light. But that light was not the light of the star, it was the light of the glory of God that shone around the angel that appeared to them with this wonderful news that every believing Jew for generations and centuries had longed to hear. But the scriptures say nothing about their seeing the scar. Given the difference in time between the visit of the shepherds and the coming of the Magi, and given the subtle nature of the star itself, it's extremely unlikely that they would have noticed what made so deep an impression on these men that we call wise. The words of our hymnals that say such things are written by men who love the Lord. They were men infatuated with the faith that saves us, but they were probably men who didn't pay a whole lot of attention in Sunday school. And finally, we come to those men who did see and did understand the significance of the star men we call magi, men we know as the wise men. Almost as familiar and recognizable as the outline of Mary on her donkey is that of these three majestic figures riding across the desert, sitting high atop camels. History that somehow managed to snub Mary's donkey has given names to these men, their number is so fixed in the mythology of Christmas as to be almost unassailable. That they were kings is widely accepted, and that they found Jesus in the stable is usually taken for granted. Where do we begin with all of this? The easiest of these myths to dispel is the idea that these men were kings. Their story is found only in Matthew. And at its end, this inspired author tells us that they departed to their own country. If they were kings, they would have come from different countries. But Matthew tells us that they all went back to the same place. They most certainly were not kings. The only title the Bible uses with reference to them is our English words, wise men or magi. These are translations of the Greek magoi. Magoi is a plural of a word that means sorcerer. It means magician. It might mean astrologer. These were men educated in the positions and the movements of objects in space with the assumption that these things could be omens of future events. It was their trained, expectant eyes that caused them to see what common people would not even notice, and that was the star or the combination of stars or the movement of stars that, for reasons unknown, allowed them to know of the pending birth of a new king in Israel. But these men were not kings. They were members of a royal court. They were advisors to a king, but they were not kings. Their number is not declared by the Bible to be three. The Greek word is a plural, which means that there was more than one of them, but beyond them, we can only guess as to their number. The number three is derived from the number of gifts that they presented to Christ, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. 
But like many of you, I remember occasions when my two parents gave me one gift, and I remember others when my four grandparents gave me five shirts. But number three is an educated guess. But it's important for us to remember that it is still just a guess, and the Bible assigns no number to these men. And men of such importance as they would have traveled with a large entourage, an entourage consisting of armed guards to protect them on the way, diplomatic aides, interpreters, personal assistants, and many others. So the total number of men following the star could easily be 50 or more. No wonder that Matthew tells us that the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred when they arrived because they were such an impressive lot. The time of their visit with respect to the birth of Christ is impossible to determine. On biblical data, it's possible to argue that it occurred within the first eight days of Jesus' life, or perhaps within the first 40 days of his life, certainly before his second birthday, but beyond these very rough estimates, no one can say for sure. But one thing that can be said with absolute certainty is that regardless of how the drama is traditionally understood or staged, they did not come while the Lord was still in the stable. We discover this when we compare the records of Matthew and Luke. In Luke's account of the visit of the shepherds, Jesus is described as a baby. In Matthew's account of the coming of the wise men, he is described as a young child. Different Greek words referring to different stages of development. And even more to the point, Luke's shepherds found the Christ child in a stable while Matthew's magi found him in a house. And we notice with some interest that when the shepherds came, they found Mary and Joseph together with the baby. But when the wise men came, they found Mary and the baby only. One of the blunders of Christmas is showing the wise men as arriving at the same time of the shepherds. And it needs to be said, of course, that the greatest blunder of Christmas is leaving Christ out of our celebration of Christmas, of ignoring him, of ignoring the amazing claims that he made for himself and were made for him, of ignoring his holy identity, of ignoring his saving work of refusing to bend before him and acknowledge him and receive mercy from his hand and to leave that stance promising to live in his name. That is the source of the joy of Christmas. It has nothing to do with angels and Mary and shepherds and wise men. But we found a number of errors that have crept into the common understanding of the history surrounding the birth of our Savior. The angels are not reported to have sung, but to have spoken. In the Bible, they are decidedly not feminine, but masculine. And the number of wings ascribed to them varies from zero to six. Contrary to the popular depiction, Mary is not known to have ridden on a donkey to Bethlehem. The shepherds were probably not sitting or lying on the ground, certainly not all of them, but were diligently standing watch, protecting their flock from predators. And there's no reason to believe that they noticed the star which was then guiding the wise men to find Jesus. The wise men were not kings. Their names and their number are not known. 
And it's clear from Scripture that their search ended at a different place and in a different time from that of the shepherds. Now, what do we do with all of this, this trivia, this detail? We look through the teachings of Christ in an effort to find out how important the details of such things are to us. And we hear him saying two things that seem to contrast with one another. On the one hand, he warns against those who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. And on the other hand, he argues for the value of even the jots and the tittles of the Hebrew scriptures. On that grand and awful day of judgment, when you and I will stand alone in the presence of a holy God, there will be no questions about the number of the wise men or how Mary got to Bethlehem. The questions that God will ask us on that day will have more to do with our faith in his dear son and our service to his son. But how do we know about Christ that we might trust him? How do we know about the life to which he calls us? Such knowledge is not natively ours. It does not come through intuition or meditation or some mystical communal experience. It is found only on the pages of the Bible, which is God's inspired word. And for that man, for that woman, for that child or young person who desires above all else in life to know and to please God, there is nothing so important, there is nothing so indispensable as a deep knowledge and a sweet understanding of that word which is God's. If you've discovered this morning that something you've always assumed to be true is contrary to what that word teaches, then you need to wonder what else you have believed to be true. Things that are much closer to the heart of the Christian faith and Christian living that is also contrary to what God has revealed to be true. Our strongest desire should be to have all that we believe, all that we think, all that we love, shaped by the same source that tells us Mary probably walked to Bethlehem, the angels probably spoke rather than sang. The shepherds didn't see the star. And the men who did were magi and not kings. May the faith we claim be based not on the cunningly devised fables that have become so common in our culture, but on the clear eternal word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we gaze on the sleeping form of one who is called the Word of God by John. We stand in awe of him. When we walk away with this vision in our minds, we realize that he has called us to himself. He has called us to believe certain things. He has called us to live in certain ways, saying that all of this glorifies and honors you as his and our Father in heaven. Remind us today, our God, that we desperately need a working knowledge of your word if we are to know you, if we are to please you. We pray that you would help us to rid all else from our thinking, but that which you have declared to be true. This we ask for the sake of our peace, the sake of our joy, but even more importantly for that of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.